Jeff Goldenberg, thanks for being here. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm going to read from your Twitter profile. Can I do that? Oh, how embarrassing. Go for it. <laughs> well, I'll leave out the embarrassing words, but I'll just, <laughs> okay. I'll just do the highlights, 160 okay. characters, whatever it is. Um, yep. You are the co-founder of uh, Abacus. You are the co-founder of High Noon Brands. And you are the author of uh, The Growth Hacker's Guide to the Galaxy. All true. All true. And just Guide to the Galaxy, <laughs> you were a big reader growing up? Um, yeah, I, I had a co-author who lived in New Zealand and the two of us had this idea to put the book out. It started as a blog post that got like attention from some marketers and got a ton of views. And then we turned it into a book. And it was a fun project at the time, but we quickly realized it was going to date really quickly and we'd have to keep it up if we wanted to. And we didn't want to do that. So I'm, I'm working on another one now, but that was uh, about five years ago. Yeah, well, I like it, um, and I've I've done a a very shallow dive, not a deep dive, but I like it, and uh, and and use some of the tools you talked about. Um, cool. But I want to talk about cannabis, and I want to talk about branding or marketing or all of those things. Um, and we've had on some of the folks from the High Noon team before around the Kingsway brand. Um, but I want to talk specifically about that because um, it came on the market within the past, you know, six, seven, eight months. Um, in a market that was certainly not mature, but was uh, seemingly crowded or um, seemingly crowded, but not well-established. I want to talk about how you think about building a brand in a heavily regulated, um, challenging, uh, not yet defined market that um, has, a, has a competitor that is illicit. Like, talk about how you sort of think about that challenge and then how you thought about sort of building brand. Yeah, it feels like ages ago that we first had the idea for, for this specific brand. And I think when we think about a brand, we're not thinking about the stuff that a lot of people think about in terms of like color and logo and na even name. We're really thinking about um, the person who's going to end up, who we, the, the person that we want to end up using it. Um, I was talking to some guys from Coca-Cola recently, and every single one of their formulations and sizes has a usage occasion for it. And that's really stuck in my mind how when, when you think about usage occasions, it forces you to get in the mind of the customer. So I remember a long, long time ago, probably before it was called Kingsway, Corey um, and I were talking about, um, we were basically studying how um, iconic beer and cigarette ad uh, brands from like the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, um, how they basically became as iconic as they did how they had sort of the staying power of decades and decades like they do, how they appeal to specific groups of, of consumers. Um, and, and then once we had the playbook figured out how to then apply it to 2020 with social media and like a constant need for content and, and the opportunity to uh, connect with customers. So I think the first thing was that um, a lot of the brands are coming out of big cities, Toronto and Vancouver, but there's a lot of smokers that aren't in big cities. So what if we came up with a brand for um, that was really for people who didn't live in big urban areas? So that was the first idea that got cooking. The second idea that got cooking was like, I know it's really cool to talk about $60 eights on Twitter and look like a baller, but like how many of those are you really going to buy? And um, we needed something that someone who was a regular user could, um, could get down with all the time. So value and brand and who we were speaking to was really, really important. Um, so that, that was sort of the basis for how we came up with it. It was for non-big cities, for regular users, 
and um, based on a playbook that really iconic brands really kind of eerily followed to a T during the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s. So that was the, the scene for, for how we came up with it. The big bet, though, uh, I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. I want to hear the big bet. <laughs> yeah, the big bet, though, and, and I talk a lot about coming up with brands that are in a different quadrant from where all the other brands are, like, uh, fighting and scrapping away. And the idea with Kingsway was we launched an Indica called Night Shift and a Sativa called Day Shift. And the idea there was like, I get it. There's like customers who will never buy this because it's not authentic. It's not like the roots that they're used to. But I thought we, we really thought about another group of people um, that would find that very useful and would find it easy to make their routine. You asked about marketing in a regulated area. The, the brands need to do so much heavy lifting because you're not allowed to say anything about them effectively. So what's so cool about day shift and night shift, and the big bet really was that the stores were going to accept it before the people. I talk about that all the time. If you're not in the stores, you can't sell to people. So your first customer is the provinces and, and, and then the stores. It was really a, a big bet that the stores were going to accept it. And the stores loved it because they understood that it was going to work for a specific important customer and not for every customer. And that's how we use branding and brand communication to communicate on its own without having the traditional levers available to support it. And I think that was the big learning. So the, the big learning was like position yourself away from everyone else and let them fight. Um, build brands that like will, will last decades and, and not quarters. Um, figure out a way that the brands could communicate for themselves because you can't do what you're doing and, and really try something different because um, if we all do the same thing, we're just going to be selling like $90 ounces in nine months. And yeah. that doesn't sound so fun. It, it, I mean, it makes so much sense as you say it and sounds, um, I like the product placement. You mentioned Coke and then you, you drink a Diet Coke. It's good. This is one of those, this is one of those, use, this is one of those occasions. Um, although you're the only one I think that's had a Diet Coke since we've been doing this. But, but um, thinking, about, um, thinking about that and sort of the quadrant idea, I hearken back to, I'm not going to name names, but like a trade show realm where mm. the brands are actually, I think both physically, but in real world too, or, or uh, like in the same quadrant. And I wonder if that's because the brands that those companies sort of early days up till really now were building, it was only part of what they were doing. The really hard part of what they were doing. I mean, that's hard to build a brand, of course, but they were also trying to run, you know, millions of square feet of grow. They were trying to raise billions of dollars in capital markets. They were trying to operationalize, you know, from the grow to the store, lots of, they were trying to do all of that and even open stores themselves. Like, like it's almost as an international expansion, right? And, and, and a, and a growing or want to be growing medical program and a mm -hmm. recreational brand and around the world, like all those things are, one of them are hard to do altogether. It's not like these five things are hard to do. They are more hard to do at five than they are at one. Um, and I wonder if, because that's not the business you guys are in and that's not the brand you wanted to build, if it's in some ways you are freer from that. And if you were freer from that, that they were more burdened by the other stuff, if that gave you just more wiggle room and the idea that you are doing exactly what you do across a lot of different sort of industries, but, but you're really sticking to your thing, if that gave you sort of a, a big leg up. Well, I used to spend a lot of time at the conferences and it made me realize that really all the brands that were made at that time were made to impress each other. <laughs> and that put them in a similar con um, 
a similar uh, um, quadrant. The same guys from Coca-Cola, when I was like, why did you spend $4 billion on vitamin water and not just make your own, told me that uh, great consumer brands can't be made in the boardroom. And I almost died when he said that, because like, that summarizes so much of, of how I think and feel. And it's the same thing, like the trade shows that were like six years of trade shows before you could even sell any weed, just got everyone uh, positioned for one another and not with the consumer. So what we thought was, and, and, and the story of High Noon is like, um, well, I'll use an analogy. I tried to go, grow weed indoor in my garage last year in the winter and three crops later, I was like, this is really hard. Like it's easy to make something flower, but it's really hard to make anything that you actually like are excited to, to consume. Um, so it, <laughs> it's a silly analogy to show like growing weed is really hard, especially in a regulated market. And like asking ourselves what we were really good at, which was like strategy and insight and making beautiful modern brands and understanding digital and content and understanding how to build relationships and, and sell into stores and differentiate, build community, uh, drive education. Uh, all that kind of stuff was what we were good at. So High Noon was like, well, what if we could, if, if weed's a consumer package good and, and it goes the same way as every consumer package good industry, it's going to have a thriving white label, private label, B2B market. We had spent a year with a bit of a false start in California, and, and that actually gave us a glimpse into the future of B2B, because the B2B there is like so seamless and integrated. So we were like, what if we can just uh, focus on what we do the best and, and, and find partners who worry about the licensing and the, and, and the growing and the security and the stock trading and all the, all the things they need to do? And through that position, would we be able to stay closer to the customer um, than they do? Someone said on Twitter the other day that everyone, every CEO or every C-suite should like go work in a store. And that was a really cool sentiment and I got behind it. But at the same time, like, we don't, like our people don't have to work in a store. Like we're immersed in the culture and like we are the people coming into the store. And because of that, it lets us stay sort of really true to what, 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 we're, what we wanna do. But I will tell you, and this continues to be, it is so hard to ignore the critics um, when they're not, even though they're not in your audience set. And that takes so much like experience, but like, it, it's almost like if they're talking bad about it, it means you might be doing right by the, the other people. And, and, and that's really interesting. I wonder, um, thinking about it a little bit less about um, your brands and what you've built or are building and more about the retail environment, because uh, what you said really struck me that thinking about the consumer and working back from there is essential. And you've been to a lot of stores. I've been to a lot of stores, new ones, sort of more, let's say, established, you know, ones that have been around since 2018, different parts of the country. Like, I wonder if that, I think in some respects, some of those retailers are doing an amazing job. Like they've thought about their core consumer, not to forget about everybody else, but like focus on the core. Who's coming in? What do they need? What do they want? Let's get it to them. Let's get it to them repeatedly. Let's make sure they buy more. Like all the things that traditional retail sort of thinks about. But I've also been, I would say half the stores I've been to, almost as if they've, they've never stepped foot in another retail establishment. Like have you found the same thing? And, and it, it, like are people forgetting that actual people come into the store with actual experience in life and want to buy something? It's really funny you say that. I don't know, maybe three or four years ago, uh, Pete and I were in California and I walked into a Medmen store on Abbott Kinney in LA. It's like the hipsterest hip store and it was beautiful. And I had my like, aha, one day I'm gonna have a product on these shelves type moment. But as, as soon as I left the store, I was like, oh crap, 
everyone's going to think about their customer as the customer who's walking into the Abikinian Madman, but there's like the valuable customers aren't those people. And there's going to be a huge opportunity to think about the other people and not just like the, the, the one percenters of, of like weed customers. And again, that's like the urban suburban kind of thing. Like it's just different. Life is different. Things are different. Um, the, the use cases are different. Um, so that, that's really interesting. And, and I, we definitely think a lot about that. Yeah. And also, I mean, and it's the same thing with on shelf. Like it's, it's both the retail environment and what's on the shelf needs to actually think back from how people are going to look at them, see it, talk to someone or not. Like, what is that, that, that back and forth? I've been really frustrated with the retail experience overall, because like, even as an experienced consumer, it takes me so long to figure out what I'm going to get, unless I'm just willing to like buy like the highest priced, highest quality product, which I'm typically not. And it so varies from store to store. At the beginning, a lot of people were using like these really confusing boards, which had like five rows of data. But in real life, there's someone behind you who's looking to buy like a pack of papers and you're sitting there trying to decipher this Excel sheet that they call a, a product menu. And it's really hard. Yeah. Um, other places, I was up at one in Muskoka and it's a beautiful store. But at the end of the day, you, you do their menu off a literal printed Excel sheet that's on the COVID window at the front of the store. So there's such a diversity in, um, in retail experience that I think is just common for the stage we're in. It'll yeah. normalize over time as best practices emerge. Um, I still love the idea, and I guess COVID threw a wrench in it of like the fast lane and the slow lane. So people who knew exactly what they were getting could come in and get it, and other people who needed more attention could get it. Yeah. But I think it's evolving and it's getting better. And as soon as the best practices uh, emerge, everyone will sort of move towards that. Yeah. And I don't, I don't want to sort of, I, we talk about them a lot, but at the Supret store in Ottawa, there's like, there, right when you walk in, there's a green basket and a red basket. One is like, no, nah, I'm good. I know what I want. The other one's like, I need some help. And it's just this visual cue. Exactly. Yeah, they're doing a nice job of innovating uh, along those lines. Yeah. I wonder whatever happened to the original OCS uh, store designs and if anyone ever used those. Interesting. Well, I, I also think the government is sitting on some of those leases. So you could actually probably go get it, take a tour of some of those stores, whether they are, are designed the same or not, uh, without being used. Who knows? Um, Jeff, well. I, I, I could do this all day. Um, uh, and if you want to, we can. But, but I, <laughs> I also want to talk about, um, if you want, I want to talk about the intersection of music and cannabis. Because sure. um, you, you are an unabashed fish fan. Mm -hmm. um, which I, which I, lots of people are, so that's not necessarily unique, but, but like, how do, and this is a brand question too, how, how do brands, how do bands, um, and how does like venues, like, what does it look like in the future? Is there, is there a, a moment in time someday down the line where you go to a Budweiser stage type place to see a show like Fish, and obviously cannabis is normalized, but like, you could actually go buy a pre-roll, or you yeah. could actually... Um, like, how do you see that happening? Well, it's already happening in California. Um, they, the, the same way that an event can get a license to sell alcohol, they can get a license to sell cannabis. To my understanding, before COVID, only a couple people had, de had done it. And for various reasons, it wasn't super successful. But like, there's the, there's the path into how it could be available. I had a really funny experience going to um, Molson Amphitheater, Budweiser Stage, whatever it's called now. Um, and for the young people there, we used to go see musicians play live in front of like tons of sweaty gross people um and it was a lot of fun um but i digress um i went there 
and and they said um your legal weed has to be um in see-through containers and i'm like well that's really funny because the government says my legal weed can't be in see-through containers so what you needed to do was take the paper off and walk in with plastic and look they're just trying to figure it all out um i, I go to a lot of concerts in the states it's not like they're doing anything better but i think the future is eventually both will be sold and consumed i went to a, a show at red rocks and they said no smoking of cannabis on property and everyone was and it was outdoor and like it's legal in denver so i don't know why they still had that policy but on that like video loop they were really adamant about telling everyone that like no cannabis smoking on the on the premises um i think a lot of musicians are going to get involved in the weed game a few already have but i think more and more um we have a, an exciting thing we're working on that i'll have to come back and, and talk to you about but i think the reason why celebrities wrong is like what you're trying to do is buy authenticity. And if you can do that successfully, you're going to win. And if you can't, then you might as well just try to build it from the ground up. And a lot of the examples we've seen to date um, really don't add a lot of authenticity to the product because of um, weak relationships or weak ties. Um, so we're still interested in working with people who have great reach. They just need to really fit the brand and the brand needs to really fit, fit them or everyone's like, nah, I'll just buy something from a master grower. Yeah. Well, Jeff, this has been great. And I look forward to the next time when you can share the news you're talking about. That would be amazing. But also uh, your approach to sort of brand um, and, and working back from the customer, all those things I think are super interesting and super helpful. And unfortunately, like we're missed in round one, let's say. Uh, but I think we're seeing more and more of it in round two, uh, Kingsway as well. But, but, but I think we're seeing other brands sort of think that way as well. So I appreciate the time um, and look forward to uh, the next time we see you down the road. Thank you. And uh, next time we can talk about Days, which I'd love to talk to you about, which is our, um, our vape brand that's coming out in a couple of months. We're doing some really interesting brand work with that to try to drive forward the education around terpenes. So we're really excited about, um, about that product. Amazing. Love it. And I also saw uh, Edible's announcement as well. So I'm, uh, I can't wait. Well, literally, I can't wait for that, that but also uh, look forward to the next conversation too. Yeah, we've been very busy. <laughs> That's good. Everybody, well, you're not in the basement, but everybody from the basement just cranking it out. That's right. All right. Thanks, Thank Jeff. you very much. You got it.